0: We have two gospel readings this morning. The first is from Luke 1, beginning in verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, he has brought down leaders from the rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Our second reading Is from Matthew 11. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to Jesus and asked him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we, we be waiting for someone else? Jesus replied, go back to John and report to him what you have heard and seen. The blind see. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised to life, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on my account. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to teach the speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Not what did you go out to see A man in dressed in fine clothes No those dressed in fine clothes are in the king's palace What did you go out to see A prophet Yes, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it was said, "I will send my messenger before you to prepare ahead of you to prepare the way before you." Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one. There has never been any risen anyone greater than John, the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Now, you've likely heard this 80 20 rule, right? You know, we apply it to many things. 20% of the people in the world hold 80% of the wealth. Or in business, 20% of your clients provide 80% of your revenues. Or in pro athletes, their salaries, 20% of the athletes make 80% of the salaries. It's uh, an idea that was first proposed by an Italian intellectual in the late, 20th, late 19th, early 20th century where he said, it's called, uh, his name is Vilfredo Pareto. It's called the Pareto distribution. And if you look at this Pareto distribution, it's on the next slide, it's not linear right? The mathematical distribution shows that the 80-20 rule looks like this, you know, the first two slots, one to two, take up most of the distribution of whatever it is that we're trying to measure. So I began thinking, is it the sa- could the same principle apply to our f- level of happiness? In this room right now, or in the group that we belong to, do 20% of us experience happiness and the 80% of us are experiencing some range of, like, unhappiness and depression? And if happiness works that way, it's kind of bleak <laughs> if the Pareto distribution. Individually, that means that 20% of the time we're only happy, the other 80% of the time we're not. And then if, as a group, that means 20% of us are happy and the rest of us are not. That doesn't sound very hopeful or joyful, does it? How does the arrival of Christ fit into all of this? Could there be another source to measure our happiness? If we're all on a journey of faith in God, then hopefully this promise of joy that God gives to us and as the children helped us celebrate this morning is not just for 20% of the people. Today's the third Sunday of Advent, and it's also known as Gaudette Sunday. Gaudette, which means rejoice. It's why we lit the pink candle here to signify joy. It's a turning point in the season of Advent where we celebrate the arrival of Christ and the promise of a Savior that ha- who has come, who is present and active in our lives, and who promises us to come once again. We find that joy described in Scripture in this Christian story is more than just a feeling and happiness that most of us in the West are pursuing. It's much more substantial joy in God's kingdom we discover is not this zero-sum game that has to fit within the Pareto distribution curve. So today, I want to look at uh, seeing joy, how we see joy, how we measure joy, and how we find joy, question mark. There's a reason for that. Vision, uh, seeing joy, measuring joy, and finding joy. finding joy. Marie Kondo has reached popularity with her strategy to declutter and simplify our possessions. You could say she has a particular vision for joy. In her method, your feelings are the standard for decision-making, right? If you're not familiar with it, she says, uh, you know, she asks the question, what sparks joy in your life? So you take your stuff, you look at one thing at a time, and you look, huh, how do I feel when I look at this bo- bo- possession? Does it spark joy in my heart? You go into another thing. How do I feel when I look at this possession? Does it spark joy in my life? You pay attention to how your body responds and you decide, do I keep this, do I discard it, or do I donate it? For Con Marie fans, as they're called, the vision of joy begins and ends with our feelings. Now, I'm all for emotional health. It's important. And it may be a good approach to, you know, deciding what to do with our possessions. I don't know if I can depend on my feelings for my vision of joy in life. Because so much of life drains me from joy if I were to pick everything around me and try and respond to it. Our text from Isaiah, uh, we didn't read it immediately this, but it's kind of embedded in the service today, it drips with joy. Isaiah writes to people in the desert. Images of flowing water and lush greenery are signs of God's blessing and prosperity and, of course, joy. But Isaiah seems to kind of go overboard with his description of joy. It's a desert that's turned into a swamp and, and, and reeds and rushes, overflowing of plants. There are pools and springs. It almost overwhelms. If you read the first two verses here, look at all the action verbs. It will be glad, will rejoice, will blossom, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shall for joy there will be glory of Lebanon, the splendor of Carmel, and the glory of the Lord, and the splendor of our God. Conmarie in opposition to the KonMari method of decluttering to spark joy, it seems that joy is just like overflowing in abundance around us in God's kingdom. Joy doesn't begin in attending to our feelings. Instead, God's in God's kingdom, joy begins in seeing the possibility of life in God's kingdom and what that looks like. That's what Isaiah did for the people of God before the Messiah ever arrived. He casts this vision of a created order that is filled with joy, filled with splendor, filled with glory. Seen this way, there's some serious implications. If joy were dependent on our feelings, then it's subject to our emotional state. But a vision of joy described in Scripture is grounded in God's character and grounded in God's action in the world. This means joy is an objective reality offered by God that is available to anyone who would be willing to receive it. So consider this. At the time when Isaiah wrote these words, God's people were in exile. They were removed from their, pe- uh, from their homeland. They were far from hope and promise. But Isaiah's words begin to fuel joy for them when they could not see it before their eyes. They were far from that promise God's people once made their way through a desert to, to the promised land and now Isaiah reminds them once again that God will lead them into glorious abundance exploding with joy. Now this joy is not just to be experienced merely as individuals. It is reflected in the entire created order. Take a look at verses uh, further in this passage. Verses 5 to 10. Eyes of the blind will be opened and, and And uh, the Matthew text repeats this. Ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. They describe a world where creation is renewed. Disabilities are restored and healed, and life comes to a lifeless desert. Go on to verse 9 and 10, describing the glory of this renewed creation. It's a world where there are no more predators, no more dangerous beasts, all of God's creation is living at peace with one another. So the question is, what fuels your vision for joy? Is joy in life for you based on your feelings or based on God's promises? In light of the advent of Christ, his first arrival, we have a great resource to ground our joy in the future arrival of Christ because Jesus has already come once to fulfill God's promises in history. You might be asking, okay, I get it, Andrew, vision of joy sounds great, God's kingdom, but have you looked at our world? It seems to be going in the opposite direction from what God has promised. Well, you aren't alone in how you feel. In fact, your skepticism is shared by John the Baptist even in Jesus' time. Our gospel text doesn't seem to be dripping with joy in Matthew, or is it? Perhaps we're not seeing it because the scene begins in a jail. Matthew doesn't pull any punches when he describes John's current status. John was in prison, and he was starting to doubt. Jesus, you're the Messiah? Really? I'm here. We learned this last week in Matthew in the text in Matthew chapter 3 when John the Baptist first meets Jesus, he proclaims he's the one to come. He's the one that I've been talking about this whole time and now he meets Jesus and he goes, "Jesus, you should be baptizing me. Why are you asking me to baptize you?" Jesus told him, "Calm down, just do your thing." <laughs> John was sure then that but now he's wondering. Really? There's hope. In you? But prison can do that to people, right? Squeeze out joy and certainty and hope. We certainly know that's in America, right? Hope and joy being squeezed out is a reality for many of our incarcerated friends. America leads the world in many things, as you can see. in, in Incarcerations per capita. Many of them are people of color. Going to prison changes communities. Doesn't just affect that one person. Statistics indicate that going to prison reduces their lifetime earnings coming out of prison. It alters the outcomes of life for their children and results in further disparities of higher crime and neighborhood deterioration in communities. If we were to measure hope and joy in America based on incarceration rates, based on gun violence, based on wealth inequality, based on health care outcomes, we don't lead in very many things. We really don't have much to rejoice about. Same thing for John in his time. John the Baptist was Jesus' runner. He was Jesus' hype man if he were a rapper. John the Baptist, too, asked the same question of Jesus. John had taken a risk. He'd gone too far. He'd spoken out against the behavior of people in power. And so now he sits in a jail cell, asking Jesus the questions. He can't go there, so he sends his followers. And he's like, was I right that day on the river when we first met? Are you really the hope of which I spoke? Because it sure doesn't look like for me. John didn't have time to wait. His days were numbered. He was sitting on death row because he spoke out against King Herod Antipas. In this scene, John's present imprisonment doesn't match his understanding of the coming one's arrival, which was to bring blessing on those who repented and to bring judgment on those who did not. But this role was reversed for John. Joy seemed to be farther away since following Jesus, not closer. How does Jesus answer John's question, or John's that comes through his followers? Like, again, Jesus doesn't answer questions directly. He points out all these things, saying, wait, I'm in the wrong. Go back and report to John what you hear. Blind receive sight, lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the dead hear, the dead are raised, good news is proclaimed to the poor. But Jesus' answers here recall the words of Isaiah in chapter 35 and amongst a lot of different parts of Isaiah blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear. Those are all found in Isaiah. John questions who to rejoice in. But Jesus' actions reflect proof of who he is and that what he's doing is salvation promised in the Old Testament. Jesus' arrival is the beginning of the year of the favor of the Lord, as he proclaims at the beginning of his ministry. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us whether his John's followers get get this message back to John. We hope he does. We hope that he receives that. And we assume that he did. Jesus tells them, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. Watch the reign of God breaking out here, breaking out there. Listen for the sound of laughter and hope and joy sung by the voiceless, danced by those who are broken in life. The question for you today is, can you see these things? Can you hear these things? You see, we often measure joy, especially in a highly individualistic culture based on our feelings, based on our comfort. But Jesus, like Isaiah, is pointing to joy in God's kingdom at work around us. Wherever you see God at work in restoring broken lives, that's where joy is. Can be found. In seeking joy, if seeking joy is, is this journey of life and faith, we find that joy is not found in the state of our feelings or in our comfort or in our individual experience. In God's kingdom, true and lasting joy is found in God's renewing work in our world. So we are invited to seek joy there, not just here and within. So how do we go deeper in this kind of joy? If we're seeking joy in the journey of this life life of faith, we discover something about joy in God's kingdom. We don't really find joy. Finding joy implies that it's our agency, it's our determination, and maybe luck that gets us it. But in God's kingdom, joy seems to work differently. Go back to the Isaiah text. What's going on there? Before, we heard the promises of verses 5 and 6 that Jesus himself repeats to John the Baptist. Joy is real, blind see, deaf hear, lame walk. I almost said deaf walk, lame hear. The mute rejoice. But note that these joyful events are the result of something else happening, indicated by the thens. Because it says, then will the eyes of the... Uh, blind be open, then will the lame leap for joy. What's the condition for this joyful experience? Look at the preceding verses. Isaiah offers us insight into joy. Verses 5. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. Then the lame will walk. See, for Isaiah, joy in God is communal. Joy is shared and is shareable. Joy helps us reach out and gather up others, particularly those who aren't experiencing the fullness of God's promised joy. What's the command? Strengthen feeble hands. That's a statement that encourages us to be with others. It doesn't say, strengthen your weak hands so that you can share joy with others, but to strengthen the hands of those around you. And in the Hebrew, it's an imperative. Go out there and strengthen. You could say that all of our joy seeking, if we're doing all this joy seeking, we were never going to find it because joy finds us. Try as we might. We can't actively pursue joy. Joy is a derivative of journeying with God into surprising places. What are the implications if we view joy this way? Well, for one thing, it might challenge our ideas of trickle-down economics and offering no handouts but hand-ups when it comes to caring for others. See, the individualistic approach to joy says life is about maximizing My happiness and my joy and my blessing first. And out of that, then happiness and blessing can spill over to joy into others. Now, there's a degree of truth to that, but that's not what Isaiah is talking about here. In our culture, anything that cramps our comfort, anything that demands patience from us, anything that requires sacrifice on our part is seen as taking away joy and comfort in life. What are some of those things? Like... Caring for elders with demanding needs. Like raising kids who refuse to be formed in the image of your parent, of the parent. Like dealing with your neighbor who has different standards of lawn care, home maintenance, and noise levels than you do. But joy in God's kingdom isn't about controlling your environment so that you feel comfortable and happy. Joy in God's kingdom arrives when we join with God in strengthening feeble hands, in steadying weak knees, and encouraging those who struggle with emotional health. We find that for Isaiah, healing is the result of sharing joy. Wholeness comes, out of, comes from this invitation, from reaching out. See, Isaiah doesn't say, go and heal. Heal. He says, go and build people up, then healing happens. And together, we all become pilgrims on this journey of joy in God. You know, this past week, Julie and I had a chance to uh, host this man named Russell Jung, here displayed uh, on screen for a few nights. He's a sociology professor from San Francisco. This is a picture from the summer. But more recently, he's been known for his work in co-founding the organization Stop AAPI Hate, Asian-American Pacific Islander Hate. In fact, he's been named as Time Magazine's top 100 most influential people in 2021. But you would never know that meeting him. Graphic novelist Gene Yang describes him in the foreword to um, Russell's memoir saying this, Russell was a skinny Asian-American guy of average height physically unremarkable in every way. He spoke gruffly, as if he forgot to polish his words before he pushed them out of his mouth. His default facial expression was somewhere between pensiveness and disappointment. How's that for asking a friend to write a foreword for your book? But in the hours that I got to spend with Russell, and confirmed by reading his memoir, I discovered the man who exuded a kind of joy that was rooted in something outside of himself. He sought to live out this ideal of downward mobility in the footsteps of Jesus. See, for the past three decades, he's lived in this overlooked Oakland neighborhood, made up of drug dealers, Cambodian refugees, and undocumented Latino immigrants. He's together with this. He he's found his home and belonging amongst them, as he describes in the title of his book, "At Home in Exile." It's up on the screen. He finds himself at home amongst this marginalized community, but he also finds himself in exile, though, because though he is a fifth-generation Asian American, he is succeeded by all measurements of of America with a Stanford education and tenured professorship at his college. He still struggles with this curious concept of self-made identity and success that America touts. Because of his skin and hair color, fitting into this American vision of self-made identity and success has befuddled him. Recognizing the Chinese people group that he and I come from, our families are called Hakka, which means Hak means guest, and Hakka means family. So it's a family of guests who have traditionally have no home and land of their own. We are perpetually an other wherever we live. That's the people group that we both come from. But rather than finding joy in his achievements and recognition and some defined identity for himself, he has found acceptance and true joy in being welcomed into the lives of these neighbors, who are often most overlooked in society. Together with his roommate, he ran English classes in his apartment that he lived in. It's the same apartment that has been shot at by stray bullets in the neighborhood. He's fostered two Cambodian refugee girls from the neighborhood. He and his wife raised their son in this neighborhood. Now His memoir doesn't scream of humble brags, but instead it is full of humble yet hope and joy throughout. Plus, it's well written and hilarious if you want to pick it up. I encourage you to. In Russell, I see a reflection of the movement of God into the world in Christ Jesus. You know, in this Christmas season, we are sold the idea that finding joy, we can find joy in the gifts that we receive and the people that we party with. But it's Advent, and it's in the arrival and mission of Jesus that we discover the model for true joy. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, saying, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down in the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus models what it looks like to fulfill the words of Isaiah completely. In his life, death, and resurrection, we see what it looks like when God comes to strengthen feeble hands, and God comes to steady weak knees, and... Help feel fearful hearts to save us from ourselves and renew the whole world. Joy for the whole world results from jesus life of sacrifice and service so we can do the same. this advent season may your vision for joy be renewed. May your measurement for what true joy is shift from this individualistic, materialistic pursuit of happiness to a joy that is grounded in the reality of God's kingdom around you. And may joy be found as you follow Christ to serve those in need around you. Amen.